P2Chat is a weekly podcast for healthcare professionals that delivers grassroots information and resources to support their diabetes care and education of people with diabetes across the healthcare system. I'm Kiralee Chambers, Advanced Practice Pharmacist and Credentialed Diabetes Educator. Hello, and I'm Jane Lehman, Registered Nurse and Credentialed Diabetes Educator. And this week, we're chatting about therapeutic inertia. I always want to call it clinical inertia, but there's a reason why we shouldn't. Well, it's actually different, isn't it? We went to a meeting last night, uh, thanks to Novo Nordisk, and they were talking about the difference between clinical inertia versus therapeutic inertia, and the different there are differences. Hmm. Clinical inertia includes such things as treatments and the person with diabetes influences such as lifestyle interventions and whether they choose to make choices about whether they want to take their medications. Mm. And one of the guest speakers who's a well-known endocrinologist in our area was talking about the fact that people with diabetes will often have about five medications and when you add a sixth medication in, Mm. they'll only take five Yeah, and they'll make the decision. I remember hearing some of that research some years back when we had a presenter at the annual conference. She was from America and she was talking about all all that medication adherence stuff where they have special ways to monitor, for example, how many tablets someone takes from their medication container and just how often people will say that they're taking their medication but they're not. So when we're looking at therapeutic inertia, Yes. We're not talking about that side of things. Correct. We're really talking about the prescribing. Correct. So therapeutic inertia really is the definition of how to intensify and de-intensify, if needed, of course. So that might be things like de-prescribing in the elderly or de-prescribing tablets when you're looking at things like insulin in diabetes and yeah. intensification quickly when we want to get people to target perhaps when they're newly diagnosed, for example. That's right, Kiralee. And the term they used last night with definition of therapeutic inertia was that it refers to the failure to advance therapy or to de-intensify therapy when appropriate. Yes. I guess to some extent this sits a lot with the prescribers. Yes. Being doctors and also nurse practitioners. Yes. And so that's what we're going to focus on tonight because who did we hear talk last night? He was an international doctor and his name was Professor Kamlesh Kunti and he was quite fascinating to listen to because he's had a lot of experience. Experience, that's the word I was looking for. Thank you, Jane. A lot of experience with the prescribing and therapeutic inertia. So He, he was done... from Leicester, I think. Correct. Leicester Diabetes Centre, where Desmond was developed by them. So they've had a lot of experience as well in looking at the impact of what people with diabetes are doing as well. Yes. So I loved the fact that he was talking about the therapy side of things, because that really is firmly in the backyard of the health professionals yes he talked about the fact that really at diagnosis if the hba1c is elevated that we really should be looking at combination therapies straight up Mm. not starting people on one medication but two or even three at diagnosis which we don't see a lot of i don't know and dr tony roberts who's an endocrinologist here in south australia but also does a lot of international research studies he was saying like 
you and I talk about a lot, Kiralee, starting insulin if it's needed. With someone with type 2 diabetes, that diagnosis, if their A1C is sort of up in that 9-11%. Yes. Well, I know that the guidelines do say that if the HbA1c at diagnosis is above 9%, mm. that they should be started on insulin. Yeah, and it's interesting. When you look at who prescribes insulin, but also oral. So we're not just talking about insulin. We're actually talking about any kind of diabetes tablet or non-insulin injectable or insulin. We have all of these tools like pharmaceutical tools at our fingertips, we still end up with about half of people with diabetes here, but also in the US, continuing to have uh, HbA1c's that are above 7%, that are sort of up in the eights and above. Yeah, and the interesting thing is, is if you look at the guidelines that suggest that 7% is kind of the, the model number that we're looking at, but someone who's newly diagnosed should have a HbA1c mm. lower than 7 6 to 6.5 so we're we're looking at the HbA1c being even lower for those newly diagnosed so we're not even meeting the targets at 7% let alone if you shift those targets for someone newly diagnosed to 6 or 6.5%. Exactly. And when we start to think about this, we really do have a serious problem. And I started off doing this broader discussion like I did with Diabetes Coalface. So Diabetes Coalface is an e-newsletter that I send out once every two months. The whole reason I started doing that, and then it's led into this podcast, is I actually feel, as a diabetes clinician, I feel really embarrassed that we have 50% of people not reaching their targets. And I, like you, assume that it's actually much higher than that. It definitely would be, I think. Yeah, we've got all these great resources at our fingertips One of the dangers is that we've got rid of one of the most useful ones, and we talked about this in the podcast, He Said, She Said, and other blood glucose monitoring dilemmas. You know, get rid of structured blood glucose monitoring, and you actually take away one of the biggest tools that people have to know when to go back to the doctor for some further review. Yes. Now, a lot of people don't get their A1C recorded more than once a year. Yes, and so that's the... That's part of the clinical inertia Mm. because life gets in the way and that's completely okay and completely acceptable, but Mm. you're taking away both tools then. Exactly. So if we haven't got the trigger as to when to go back to the doctor, the doctors are also very reliant on the glycosylated haemoglobin. And if they're not understanding of the nuances of being under seven with people who are going to have diabetes for a long time who aren't at risk of hypos we're losing all the legacy effect that we can get by getting people well managed early yes and the really interesting thing that dr kunti said was that what they're finding in other countries is that the prescribers are actually swapping medication from one class to another Mm. but that's not what they consider intensification so Mm. that legacy effect is actually being lost as well yeah so they don't get the ongoing impact of the medication they're currently using correct because then if you add on you should boost the impact of bringing the long-term glucose levels down if we're just looking at a1c's yes So what you see also is that in each new stage of a person's diabetes management, this inertia is there. So from someone who's at first, 
And we're talking about type 2 diabetes yes, management here. Correct. So with people who are managed with their lifestyle initially, depending on how much you can help people to magnify that, then usually people will go on to one, maybe two, maybe three oral tablets. There might be also a GLP-1 added in which was certainly talked about a lot last night it was yes and also then insulin now if you're getting inertia at every one of those phases yes we're talking about people being outside of range for a long time yes he also alluded to the fact that inertia also leads to the progression of complications if that's what we want to call it and we've talked about that as a okay Mm. uh, or associated health problems yeah Insert what you prefer, I think, with that one. <laughs> yeah, so inertia can lead to the progression of complications such as retinopathy and possibly nephropathy, and they, and they talked about that as well. The microvascular issues. And, yes. you know, it's really interesting. I've been in meetings with specialists and doctors who are all acting as, in an advisory capacity around the design of, say, a new program, and quite often they're very quick to dismiss the impact of high glucose levels. They're very keen to focus on the cardiovascular blood pressure and cholesterol yes because that affects the large blood vessels yes but honestly the small blood vessels are pretty important if it's your sight and your kidneys and the sensation in your feet and all of the autonomy type of neuropathies well the interesting thing is is that the one thing that will drive people back to a gp or seek specialist attention is nerves yeah, because yeah. people will, from a pain perspective, it's not just the numbness, but no. if those nerves start to fire, that will—that's very much a motivator. So they're the—they're yeah. the small blood vessels, the small damage to nerves. Everyone knows that neuropathic pain hurts. Oh, and it's the one pain that there's not a lot of pain relief that we can get to get people comfortable. No, so I guess we have to put this in the in the lap of prescribers but also those people who can facilitate prescribing around them yes and what I don't want people to think is that this is us having a go at doctors oh certainly not no you know we work in partnership with with many doctors and by using our skills to the best that we can all of us we actually end up with the best outcomes however when you've then got so many experiences you you've only got to get a room full of credentialed diabetes educators together and add to that nurses in aged care or people working in disability and the stories you start to hear about people being taken back for review because their levels are too high the lack of listening when recommendations are being made and i have to say we as cdes that's all we do is diabetes we should know this stuff really well correct and so the more that we can facilitate this prescribing the better it is certainly i agree diabetes is moving rapidly now mm-hmm. and the more I, I mean you would have been at the abc with me and we saw the time frame and the timeline of new medications hitting the market mm-hmm. in the next 18 months and two years the medications that are going to hit as, is exploding mm-hmm. and to keep up with that is a full-time job as mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. 
the GPs, I don't know how they keep up with any disease state, let alone so many. Mm. So we need to all work as a team. And I think that team environment is now starting to become a little bit fragmented. Mm. And so we need to become a collaborative team effort again. And that is something that we need to work towards better, I think. Yeah, and especially when you consider that the inertia also comes from the titration of dosing. Oh, yes. Yes, we see that so, a lot. The old Lantus 10 unit. And then two years later, the person's still on Lantus 10 units. If they haven't been split to five units, be it. Yes, and that's not the Lantus's fault. (laughs) Absolutely not. It's a great product. Yeah, yeah. In fact, what they did say last night was it's the healthcare professionals who are more insulin resistant to people starting insulin, for example, than people with diabetes. Yes. And so quite often, I've heard it before, especially in someone who's older. Oh, I really don't want them to have to go on to insulin. I, you know, I think it will be too much for them. Can we just see what else we can do? Well, when you actually talk to the person and they say that they're getting up to go to the toilet all the time, they're sick of their blurred vision. Tired of being tired. Tired of being tired. Tired, tired, <laughs> tired. And that is exactly what high glucose levels do to you. You know, health professionals, please talk to people with diabetes. Ask them about their symptoms. Yes. If you don't ask them the impact of these high levels. I see this in aged care as well, where I have people who are being still tightly managed. They're hypoing. The doctors sometimes will not pull back. Yes. And that's well known, well documented now about frail elderly having their levels maintained higher. But you've got the other side of it as well, when their levels are being managed at sort of 15 and above, and they're symptomatic, getting out of bed and confused to go to the toilets, high risk of falls. Yes. If we don't have more conversations about this and challenge each other, then we're never going to get this number down. And until they start referring back to credentialed diabetes educators, where we can help with this, we can help set the doctor up for success, just like we do the person with diabetes. Yes, and so agreed. If we all did that, I was reading an article about this when we were getting ready to do this talk today. And one of the biggest things that can help with inertia is education. Oh, absolutely. Because it will drive the person with diabetes to understand why they're taking their medication. It stops people dropping off of their medication. It helps them understand if you want someone to do something or you want to ask someone to change their ways, the best thing that you can do is educate them as to why they're doing it. And Tony Roberts gave us a beautiful example of someone he had seen recently who was taking insulin and he was reassuring Tony that he was taking it. And on further questioning, and I have to say, what an outstanding endocrinologist to do the additional question for him to work this out is that he worked out that his insulin he said is it what what color is it in through the plastic and this person looked at his mum and said oh clear well it was actually a mixed insulin and so what he wasn't doing was rolling it to get the insulin properly mixed yes and so his a1c was high he was also having hypos and that's where having someone who could problem solve properly 
identified the issue then you could get it rolling and then titrate from there but there are so many things with these medications and the consistency of people taking them that if you've got a CDE involved who can also spend a bit more time and develop a relationship with that person it's a different role to what for example a primary care nurse will do. Well, the stats show that the amount of people that do not take three times a day medication is, is as low as 14%. Yeah. So we all know that metformin is prescribed up to three times a day. Yeah. The amount of people that do not take mm. their TDS metformin mm. is astounding. And it's also about, to stop the inertia, it's about doctors and nurse practitioners and all of those professionals around these people also asking about the side effects. Because metformin can be very rugged on some people. Yes. And many of us have heard of people who've had such bad diarrhoea when they've started it that they couldn't go out anymore. Yes. And to be frank, what's amazing is that they keep taking it. Yes. Everyone doesn't stop it if they've got that side effect. Yes. So we have to stop putting our head in the sand and remember that these drugs can have side effects. And after having seen my daughter Sarah go through lots of different seizure medications to get ones that are going to work, I now have this mandate that every drug has positive and negative effects. The whole focus is around finding one that has more positive impact than negative. Absolutely. And we have to work with the person and we have to allow them the opportunity to tell us what's going on. Because if they don't, they'll just lie. Yeah. And they do. And they do it all the time. You can't blame them. Absolutely not. You know, I had a lady who was interesting. She knew where every public toilet was all the way from where she lived to the place of the biggest city. And she had been doing that for 20 years. Now, Mm. no one had put the fact that she had metformin. She had seen seven gastroenterologists. She had been put on a very restrictive diet. Mm. She'd been diagnosed with irritable bowel. And I said to her, how long have you had irritable bowel syndrome? She said, 20 years. I said, how long have you had diabetes? 20 years. How long Mm. have you been on metformin? 20 years. We took her off the metformin, all gone. Yeah, it's quite phenomenal. What we've talked about so far is the challenges with Getting people started on medications and the fact that there's often issues with each step that the prescribers have got to stop feeling like they need to give people more time. Now, a lot of people will try and bargain with, with their health professionals. Just give me, you know, another go. Well, please send them to a CDE because we will help them get that go working for them, but do it early. Yes. Even if you can start something by saying that we can get this started, you will feel much better and then you're more likely to be setting yourself up for success with having your medications and things. So I reckon Tiddles, your cat, definitely agrees there, Jane. He's been at the door (laughs) saying, yeah, I agree with everything you say, yeah? Oh, no. If only he was a prescriber. So interestingly, Jane, um, one of the things we all know that prescribers are worried about is the Accord study that was a couple of years ago that kind of changed the dynamics, didn't it, and the landscape of diabetes in that the people that have had diabetes for a long period of time, if they drop their blood glucose levels too low or their HbA1c too low, people were worried about hypos. Yeah. And that question came up last night. It was addressed. 
in that someone had cardiovascular risks. I think, don't quote me, but I reckon the person had had a, an event or mm. was at high risk of a cardiovascular event, was quite young. Yes. And the question came um, up, would we t- still intensify and try and get their HbA1c as low mm. as possible? And that it was a really good answer in that Dr. Um, Kanti said that therapeutic inertia, he would still trade and would still intensify because the real-world data suggests that the studies and real-world data are not equivalent. Yeah. Because what, although therapeutic inertia is still very relevant, when you bring clinical inertia or you bring real-world experiences in... Mm that impact doesn't occur because, of course, the person then brings their experiences into. Mm. So the data that we're seeing come out of trials is, while it's still relevant, it doesn't reflect what happens in the real world. No, and that's where I think people have to be very careful, um, especially when you've got someone who, for example, has an intellectual disability with a genetic basis. Yes. Their body is different. Yes. And so they are not in the trials. A lot of people who we all see are not in any of the large worldwide trials that are used to establish the safety of these medications. And so... If you've got someone who has a genetic disorder, the way their body works is different. And so the dosing may be different. The side effects they experience may be different. And so we have to constantly keep a healthy scepticism around how people are going to react to any medication that is started. Yes, and Tony Roberts alluded to that again last night in that when you have a dose of insulin, for example, it will react and respond very differently to each and every person and each and every day to that same person, it will be different, which is why insulin is very tricky, but again, is such a safe medication and should not be withheld just because we're worried about hypos. Yeah, and education decreases the hypos. Absolutely. That was what they were talking about as well. Yes. So again, person-centered care is, if we are doing it correctly, person-centered care means that we look at the person, we listen, we customize around them. Yes. If there are special flags that we all need to be thinking about, then think about them, but don't not do anything. Yes. If you're a nurse in a general practice if you're a nurse working in a clinical area on a ward or if you're a diabetes educator or credential diabetes educator if you feel there is a need to have some more medication started or the dose titrated please pass that on now one good way of doing that we all know that it's very difficult to get in contact with doctors because they're seeing people all the time educate the person with diabetes around what they need to go and talk to the doctor about because honestly if the person is asking for it it is so much more likely to happen yes absolutely yep because that drive then comes from the person well they also can't say oh you know we want to wait a bit longer yep so we can prepare people for the change yes and we can make the suggestions and If things aren't being titrated enough, then people will decide what doctor they want to see as well. Yes. Yep, that's a great suggestion. I agree. So it's all about equipping the individual. Now, one way I do this 
is that I will print off my letter while I'm doing my session and I give it to the person yep. or email it to them after if, if I haven't been able to finish it. That is the same letter that I send to the doctor. Yes. I've talked about it on the podcast before. I'm now addressing them to the person I've seen and the doctor so that both names are on there. Yeah, that's a great idea. And that means that when the doctor reads it and my language sounds like I'm talking to the person with diabetes, it makes sense as to why, yes. to be honest, because yeah. it must get very confused. I'd love to see doctors' faces when they're reading it sometimes and I'm flipping from like I'm talking to the doctor or I'm talking to the person with diabetes. They must think, what is, what is this on? woman doing? Mm. But... They would know as well when they see the person bring their letter in or when they talk to them about it that that is an education strategy and empowerment strategy that I use with people. Yeah, yeah. And if I could touch type as quick as you, I would be doing the same. Unfortunately, a long way behind in that skill. But you can do it after. Yeah, that's true. um, It doesn't have to... I get everyone's email address now on the contacts that I get. And the other thing I do when I do that is I say, is it all right for medical information to go to that email address? Yeah. Because sometimes people will give you their work email and then they'll think, oh, no, I'll give you this one. Yes. Uh, So it is very important to check where it can go as well. Mm. I think we've given that a pretty good jiggle on. Yeah, I think that's a good discussion. We said that we were going to call it as it is. Yeah. So As we always do for the P1 and P2. Yeah, P1 and P2 will always be honest mm-hmm. and call it as it is. Thought-provoking, I would call it. Thought-provoking. That's a very nice way of saying it. Mm. About uh, uh, therapeutic inertia. Yeah. So Thought-provoking on therapeutic inertia yeah, today. Nice, yeah. Mm. So we are going to put an article up or some information on overcoming therapeutic inertia. You'll be able to find that at www.edhealth.com.au. And if you just search P2 Podcast, that would be great. You can email questions to Jane, which is spelled J-A-Y-N-E, at edhealth.com.au. And don't forget to like us on Wooshka. Wooshka. We're still um, loving that word. It's pathetic. And we're uh, also... Oh, do you know what my husband called the podcast the other day? Uh, I'm not sure. Vodka. Vodka. Because of the Wooshka. We're also on iTunes and now we're on Spotify. We're on Spotify now. I mean, is there any holding us back? Apparently not. And I do have to say thank you to everyone who's been not only saying that they're enjoying the topics that we're talking about, but they've also been sending it on. Yes, that's great. Someone told us last night that they'd sent it up to the educators up in Darwin. Darwin. So if you're listening today, Darwin educators, hi, welcome. Yeah, wish we were there. But also, if you want to send us a question that you want us to talk about, then please do, because we would love to be addressing exactly what you all want. So I guess that's it for another podcast. Another podcast done and dusted. Mm -hmm. So for now, it's goodbye from me, Jane Lehman. And goodbye from me, Kiralee Chambers. Nice to chat. Bye. See you later.